Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for uh, joining this afternoon's uh, virtual roundtable. I'm just going to start the session a little bit early uh, so that we can run through um, a couple bits of uh, sort of housekeeping just before we introduce uh, my fellow panelists. At the same time, um, sort of run through what we're going to do today. So just to, to do a little bit of housekeeping as we, as we get started, um, as with all of these virtual roundtables, uh, the idea is that we have a free exchange of ideas and all the participants, the panelists will um, you know, sort of express their own opinions on the, the fact patterns that we are running through. But the idea is that this is not uh, and doesn't constitute legal advice and that you, know, you shouldn't be relying on this as constituting legal advice going forward, but it's just a, a sort of sincere discussion between professionals um, uh, dealing with the, the matters at hand in terms of these uh, scenarios that we, we set ourselves. Okay, so coming back to today's uh, virtual uh, round table, the Malaysia virtual round table, I introduce um, my sort of co-panelists and I'll go through each in turn just to talk a little bit about um, their, their background and what they're doing, just so that in case you haven't come across uh, these common practitioners before, then we'll have an opportunity for you to um, understand what they're doing. So the first I'll talk about is uh, a good friend of mine, Farah Crosby. Uh, Farah is obviously CEO of Lab One IDFC, uh, a wholly owned subsidiary of Lab One Financial Services Authority, which is the uh, statutory regulatory authority for Lab One International Business and Financial Center uh, under the purview of the Ministry of Finance Malaysia. Uh, Lab One IDFC incorporates serves as a jurisdiction's official market development agency. Uh, Farah is a seasoned strategic communication, market development, and financial services professional with more than 25 years experience in wholesale uh, financial services, putting a good step to position and develop Lab One IDFC as Asia's go-to mid-shore financial intermediation center. Farah uh, uh, is formally attached to the Asian Institute of Finance and Tourism Malaysia, Malaysia's national stock exchange, and she has served in numerous senior market development and strategic communication roles. And of course, um, as we've all seen, Lab One has gone from strength to strength over the years, and a lot of that can be attributed to Farah and her team and all the hard work that they've been doing. We'll also be joined by Gul Kayan. Uh, Gul is with uh, uh, the uh, Shirin Dillamore & Co, partner with, and heads the Tax and Revenue, Private Wealth and Family Business Practice Group, um, with more than 23 years uh, experience advising all aspects of tax and revenue law, including income tax, corporation tax, real property gains tax, double tax treaties, Lab One business activity tax and Lab One companies, Lab One partnerships, Lab One trusts and Lab One foundations and asset protection planning. Kim has appeared extensively before the Special Commissioners of Income Tax, the High Court of Malaysia, uh, the Court of Appeal, as well as the Federal Court for Tax and Revenue Cases, an extremely experienced practitioner. And then finally, we've got Dominic. Uh, well, Dominic is a, is a regular on the virtual round tables. And as we probably all, if you've tuned into these things before, then you'll know that Dominic is uh, responsible for Henry and Partners operations across South and Southeast Asia, and now latterly the UK. Dominic is a private client specialist in residency and citizenship by investment planning, and regularly advises high net worth individuals, uh, their families and advisors across Asia, targeting countries that are deemed most attractive to wealthy clients in terms of mobility, security, privacy, personal tax, estate planning, as well as lifestyle. Uh, Dominic is also a member of the firm's uh, government, government advisory practice, providing strategic advice to governments on the design, implementation and promotion of investment migration programs. 
companies. So there's our panelists for today, and of course, yours truly. As with all virtual roundtables, we will start off with um, looking at different fact patterns dealing with domestic cases and then looking at foreign cases. In this case, the domestic case will look at migration planning, matrimonial property, divorce, and succession in the context of a Malaysian uh, domestic family. We'll then look at the foreign case study uh, and we'll look at a uh, family emigrating or moving from Hong Kong uh, to um, you know, Malaysia, uh, the matrimonial property, divorce and succession interface when they do that with Malaysia. Domestic case study. As usual, we'll build up the fact patterns so that we can then ground the, uh, the discussion to follow. And here we have uh, Richard, who is a Malaysian resident domiciliary citizen. And he has uh, property, real property, uh, cash, as well as investments in Malaysia. Uh, Richard is married to Isabel and has a daughter, uh, Sophia. From a migration standpoint, uh, Richard is interested in two particular uh, sort of topical and popular programs for domestic relations, which is the UK and Australia. The questions that I would ask on this in terms of the UK immigration options is the, the options that we have for Richard to consider, the due diligence process that's involved in both of the UK and in, in respect of the UK program, the costs and the, uh, the investment required, as well as the application time. And I would ask Dominic if he could please sort of help us with understanding from the UK standpoint, what's, on, uh, what's Richard gonna be in for when he's looking at this as an immigration program. Dominic, I think you're yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm off mute. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, yeah, so when we look at the, the Malaysian market, so so from our perspective, there's there's two there's two sort of interest groups. There's there's Malaysians in Malaysia who of course um, are not allowed dual citizenship, so so very much is a lot of interest in in residence by investment and then the various options that are available around the world, and certainly we see significant interest from our clients that are that are Malaysian in Malaysia um, is often into Australia particularly and also in the UK um, where probably education is a bit more of the driver um, there and then just as a quick side note there are of course a lot of non-Malaysians in Malaysia um, who are also interested in these programs but also may be um, from countries or they may hold nationalities that allow dual citizenship and then of course some of the other uh, citizenship by investment programs that are available around the world might be interesting for them. So we'll touch on a little bit more of that later. If we look at the, the UK, as I said, you know, the big driver for families looking at the UK, particularly from Asia, is often around um, the ability of their children um, to go and study in, in the UK. Uh, the UK has a number of options available. Of course, there's the typical student visa route, um, uh, you know, and, and if it's not education, there's of course, you know, skilled visa routes as well. But um, from our perspective, we only really focus on those investment migration programs that are available around the world and also in the UK, where if you meet certain financial capacity and due diligence requirements, you're able to invest um, sometimes into a business or into some form of uh, investments in the UK. And with that, you can get um, residents in the UK. So, 
by far the, the most, I would say the most straightforward uh, route into the UK would be the, the investor program, the tier one investor visa. Uh, and this is typically um, for an applicant that is looking to invest at least two million pounds uh, into uh, this, this used to be able to go into government bonds, which was definitely the preferred route. But um, the Home Office recently changed the requirements around that. And so the two million pounds now would need to go into UK registered actively trading companies. So that can be corporate bonds or shares, um, typically in an investment account under their name, um, which they would need to hold for five years. And after five years, the applicants and their family can acquire permanent residence in the UK, which, which is known as indefinite leave to remain. It is, a, it is a tiered program. So the two million pounds investment gives you eligibility for indefinite leave to remain after, after five years. You can invest five million pounds and get permanent residence after three years or 10 million pounds and can be eligible for permanent residence after two years. Uh, the UK program though does require you to actually go and live there in, in order to earn that, that permanent residence. So a lot of the programs we work on around the world, um, the physical presence requirements are you know, limited to none. Um, but in the UK's case, even if you're investing these amounts, um, most of our clients from Malaysia, the goal is to get permanent residence there. And if they want that, they would have to spend effectively six months in the UK in each of those five years. So quite an easy thing to do if, if the kids are studying there, um, but depending on the family structure, um, you know, a, a lot of our clients in Asia can't afford that amount of time outside of their home country for, for various reasons. Um, so main focus is really the, the tier one investor visa. There are, there are two other options, which I'll just briefly mention. One is the innovator program. So this replaced the, what was known as the entrepreneur program a few years back. So the innovator program um, is for an applicant that's actually looking to start a new business in the UK. Um, not so straightforward, there's, there's a number of um, uh, registered endorsing bodies which would need to review the applicant's business proposal uh, and decide whether this, this business um, that they intend to bring to the UK meets various tests around innovation and viability and scalability. But if, if you're going through that innovator program, you are eligible for that indefinite leave to remain after three years. And the minimum investment there generally starts at only 50,000 pounds. So depending on the client's profile, also interesting in certain circumstances. And then finally, there is also the overseas business program, which is really for a, a representative of an overseas business. So um, the main applicant would need to be a senior employee of an overseas business um, and that they would look to be coming to the UK to set up a branch or wholly owned subsidiary of that business. And again, with that, they can, can get residence. Uh, and then the final one, which is not really an investor visa, but, but quite popular um, in, in Asia, is, is, is just a simple spousal visa. So, you know, a lot of, um, we, we find a lot of uh, expats that have come over um, earlier in their careers and they've sort of built a family here in Asia and potentially the spouse is not a UK citizen. Um, but if one of the spouses is a UK citizen, uh, it's possible for them to get the spouse visa and, and move back into the UK as well. Um, so just in a, in a quick nutshell, so, so those are, are pretty much the immigration options. Look, the due diligence process is, is pretty standard as you would expect, certainly on the tier one investor visa, a lot of the, the AML and, and checks are done by the bank. So 
one of the one of the changes that came in around the due diligence was it's very clear that you have to show that you know the, the, the clear source of those funds and typically the two million that's going to be used uh, to make the investment would need to be sitting on an account for at least two years prior to the submission. Um, the cost of the investment, I think we've gone through, and the application time can also be quite quick. So the original, the initial entry visa can be obtained in as little as four to six weeks. Um, but of course, if, if the client's looking to go through the innovation where there's these endorsing bodies that need to, to take a closer look at what this business is, then the process can get a bit longer. But you're looking at anywhere sort of all in from three to six months for the process um, and relatively straightforward. In terms of the due diligence, um, they look at the source of funds for the investment, but then they also look at the source of wealth generally of the applicant. How far do they actually go into a full AML review as if they were immediately high risk sort of customers? How, how does that work, Dominic? So, I mean, in terms of the investor visa, obviously they're, they're typically the 99% of the clients would do it through an investment account with a, with a local bank in the UK. So, so the bank would typically be covering off all of the AML checks. In terms of the process itself, um, you know, the applicant always has to give police clearance certificates. There is the normal sort of um, KYC checks that would be done, not only by us before we even accept the client, um, but also by the, by the home office itself. Right, okay. And in respect of the Australian program, again, uh, what are the options that Australia is offering? And then the, the same, what's the due diligence process look like, the costs uh, and time of application? How does that look as a comparison to the, um, to the UK program? Yeah, the, from a due diligence perspective, it's much the same. You know, clients would always have to provide police clearance certificate. There would be quite an, a probably a slightly more extensive um, analysis of the source of funds. And that's um, also because the, the amounts that are required for Australia, particularly on the top end, are, are even higher than the entry level in the UK. Um, Australia, again, as I said, is residence by investment. So both in the UK and Australia, citizenship is possible um, in, in, in the UK after five to six years, depending on what route they go. And in Australia, this uh, similar time frame, usually after five years. But if you want the citizenship, then you've really got to spend physically at least sort of 75% of each of those years in the UK or Australia. Uh, and of course, if you're from a country like Singapore or Malaysia that doesn't allow dual citizenship, then it's quite a big decision to make to renounce, you know, the nationality you were born with to take an Australian um, or UK citizenship. Uh, in the Australia program, so we just talk again, Australia has a number of sort of skilled visas, student visa options, um, but we'll just, we, are, we only really focus on assisting clients with the investor visas that are available. Um, there's pretty much two broad categories available in Australia. You've got the, the business innovation uh, stream, which is known as the, the 188 stream, and there's a couple of options under that. Um, and and the, this business innovation or 188 visa class is effectively a two-stage process. So you would make the investment, uh, you would get the you would get a, a temporary residence visa in Australia for four years, and subject to certain requirements in terms of the investment and physical presence. After four years, you can get permanent residence in Australia, um, and again later on citizenship if you qualify. The second stream is the business talent program, which is the 132 subclass um, of visa. 
and there it's a direct to permanent residence uh, route. Um, so depending on the client, look, a lot of, as I said, a lot of our clients in Malaysia as well are not ready to move yet. Um, so so the, the, the two-stage process is okay because once you become permanent residents, like in a lot of countries, you know, in order to renew that permanent residence or to keep it, you do have to spend some time. Um, so a lot of the clients are, are happy to go with the 188 stream, um, which, which, you know, particularly if you go in on the top end, which is a $5 million investment, then you actually only, the, the physical presence requirements in Australia are quite low. So depending very much on, on what the clients, uh, what their timing is and what they can do. Most of the clients, we always say are cash rich and time poor. So, you know, they have the financial capacity to do these things, but it's, it's not so easy to go and spend, um, you know, a, a significant amount of time in the country. Uh, but we see now, particularly coming on the, hopefully coming out at the back end of um, this COVID situation, maybe not quite, uh, but a lot of clients are now looking to just have that plan B in, in place um, depending on how long the current situation goes on and arguably maybe this is not the last pandemic we'll see in our lifetime. So a lot of the clients are looking at Australia and New Zealand as well. We're, we're not going to get into New Zealand today, but New Zealand has significantly picked up in interest as well. Similar structure programs as Australia. Um, in terms of the investment amounts, so that the two most popular programs in Australia would be the investor stream and then what's known as the significant investor um, visa stream. So the investor stream requires a 1.5 million Aussie dollar investment into a state government bond. So it's a relatively low risk, um, but it's only really for someone that's looking to physically move to Australia. So as I said, it's a four year temporary visa. You invest the one and a half million into a bond. Um, and in order to get permanent residence after four years, the applicant would need to spend two out of those four years physically in Australia. So it requires a bit of a commitment in that regard. Um, what is very popular, of course, is, is what's known as the SIV, the Significant Investor Visa. Um, that's because it's a, it's a higher investment amount, but there's no real requirements in terms of the applicant's um, personal experience uh, or skills. Um, and the physical presence requirements are also very low. So in order to get permanent residence after four years under the SIV, the applicant would only need to spend 160 days over the four-year period. Um, but in order to have that benefit, it requires a five million Australia dollar investment. And that's typically into what they refer to as um, complying investment. So that is 10% needs to go into venture capital, 30% into small cap emerging companies and then the balancing 60% can go into bank bonds and that type of thing. So it's a, it's a, a different risk profile in terms of what the investment is going into. Um, but there's a number of fund houses or banks in Australia that, that have funds set up specifically for the SIV. Right, right. <clears throat> and you mentioned uh, New Zealand. I'm just showing on the screen some of the other migration programs. Um, what other programs do uh, Malaysians typically look at other than the UK and Australia, or have you seen trending? Yeah, so look, the, the US and Canada is similar to UK and Australia. Still quite popular from an education perspective, but the programs are, 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 quite, um, are quite lengthy in terms of the process. So the, the US has the very well-known EB-5 program. That minimum investment went up from 500 to 900,000 US last year. 
Canada has a pure investment program, but that's currently closed and will probably only start accepting applications next year. Um, probably the, the things we do the most, if it's outside of, of Australia or the UK and Malaysia, Portugal, you know, has, has one of the most popular programs across, across many nationalities. It's residents, it's typically a 350 to 500,000 euro real estate investment. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting investment, you know, Lisbon and Porto and these places are, are um, uh, certainly preferred destinations in terms of getting into real estate. Um, and then with that, you're getting a, a resident card for Portugal. So again, it's that plan B or just an option if I need one. Uh, and also the interesting thing about Portugal again is, 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 is through this, what they call the golden resident permit program, after five years, as long as you can speak elementary level Portuguese, you can also apply for the Portugal um, citizenship, again, taking into consideration whether your current nationality allows that or not. Right. And, and just finally, I think, Dominic, just an update on the MM2H program that Malaysia had had in, in operation for many years. Is there anything that we can um, sort of report on that? Yeah, so I mean, the latest update is unfortunately just that it's been suspended while the government reviews a few things. So it's been a wildly successful program, um, relatively low thresholds to get to, to, to obtain it. You know, it's a fixed deposit on a bank account in your name for 10 years. You get a 10-year long-term visit pass, and that fixed deposit can range, depending on your age, anywhere from roughly fifty dollars to $100,000. Um, but the program was suspended last month. The government has said that they're going to be doing a review of it. Um, probably we can expect maybe some changes down the line, but the last indication at the, at the moment, we cannot submit applications at the moment, but the last indications of that, uh, the program will open again towards the end of the year. Right, okay, all right. Okay, thanks very much, Dominic. I think we'll, we'll move on now. Um, look at domestic matrimonial property. So going back to the original fact pattern, uh, where we have Richard and Isabel uh, with Sophia, and what we've got <clears throat> is a spread of assets across multiple jurisdictions. So here we have Richard owning a, a BVI company, which in turn owns an investment account in Singapore, and then separately uh, Richard owns land, as well as the, in, an investment account in the UK, as well as the domestic Malaysian um, assets. So what we're looking at is from the context of the uh, uh, matrimonial sort of regimes in Malaysia, it's a few questions that we would ask. Uh, does the concept of matrimonial community property exist in Malaysian uh, family law? Uh, is there a presumption of joint ownership of the matrimonial home? And are pre and postnuptial agreements valid in Malaysia? And here I'd ask um, Kim just to, to, to run us through um, from a Malaysian perspective, whether or not these, um, you know, how these questions can be answered. So leading off with the concept of matrimonial community property uh, within a Malaysian context. Yes, um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, in Malaysia, we don't actually have this concept of community property as such. We don't call it community property, but um, when uh, a couple wishes to legally separate or or divorce when they go to a, a court in Malaysia, then the court does have the power to order division of the assets acquired by the couple during the marriage. So from that point of view, it, it may be taken to be you know, the same thing. So they don't call it as such a community property, but they, the court would look at the assets acquired during the marriage 
and um, take into account contribution by each of the party, whether in terms of money or in terms of work and in terms of, um, you know, perhaps for a spouse that doesn't work, caring for the family, you know, all those things will be taken into account in uh, the court making a, a determination as to how to um, split the property acquired during the marriage uh, when a marriage breaks down. Right, and this is, this is effectively a discretionary power. It is um, a discretionary power. So there's not like civil law jurisdictions where there's an automatic uh, sort of division on the marriage, on celebrating the marriage. In, in Malaysia, really, you, you look at it after the, the relationship has broken down and they're trying to divvy up the assets in the divorce. Yes, so yeah, so they do take into account all these um, uh, factors that I, I've mentioned, uh, as well as the needs of the, of the children, of course, and, and um, you know, the debts of the couple, that, that sort of thing. Right. I mean, so far as the matrimonial home is concerned, this is always a perennial problem when it comes to cohabitees and also with obviously married couples. Um, it, does, does Malaysia rely on effectively trust law? to work out you know, whether or not there are actually shares outside of the, 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 the divorce discretionary um, powers? Or how, how does it work within the Malaysian context to work out whether or not the matrimonial home is itself uh, owned in divisions? I think we, Malaysia follows um, the English concept of trust law being a common law jurisdiction. So the, the trust concept is always there and is always uh, you know, in prevalence. But I think when it comes to things like the matrimonial home, because there is a specific act that we're talking about, which is the Law Reform Marriage and Divorce Act of 1976. So the, the court and, and, and the judge would go um, in accordance with that act and the powers and the provisions set out in that act. Right, right. And then this perennial issue of the nuptial agreements and this is, this is something that's recurred across the whole series of virtual roundtables. And we just want to sort of understand from a Malaysian standpoint, what's the status of a nuptial arrangement with respect to uh, a marriage breakdown? Do, do the courts slavishly follow them or do they effectively not take them into consideration? What's the position under the, the Malaysian family law when it comes to nuptial arrangements? Well, the, um, the concept of uh, pre and post nuptial agreements, as you say, is now becoming a lot more common. And in terms of just the, um, the validity of, of those agreements, obviously like any other agreements, if you satisfy the requirements for a contract, it, it is valid vis-a-vis uh, -vis the parties themselves. But the courts are, are not bound by uh, these agreements. So they, you know, to, to adopt your words, they, they will not slavishly uh, follow the provisions in, in these agreements and they will always use their discretion and uh, they may consider it, they may look at it and take into account that, you know, perhaps uh, that was the intention of the parties, but they're not bound to follow it. And uh, at the end of the day, it's up to the courts um, in using their discretion. Right. Has there been any sort of seminal case that's revisited this recently in, in, in Malaysia, um, uh, in Malaysian law, or is this something that we are, we are sort of waiting for to happen in Malaysia, a case that actually to confront this whole issue of natural agreements. I, I think we're still waiting for that seminal case. Right, right, okay. And then moving on in terms of the, the, the asset protection and succession planning. So here we have the case where uh, we're looking at Richard uh, uh, 
creating a trust uh, in uh, Lab One of his investments in uh, mainland Malaysia or peninsular Malaysia. And the question asked is, can Richard actually create a trust in Lab One using property located in Malaysia? So um, obviously in the, in the fact pattern, uh, Richard is resident, domiciled and citizen of Malaysia. Um, and here he's putting assets, in this case investments, he'd be putting that into a trust established in uh, Lab One. Now, is this actually possible? It, it is possible, but Richard would require the prior approval of the Lab One Financial Services Authority first, before he can put those um, property into a Lab One trust. And, and that, that sort of authorization process, what's actually involved in that um, from, a, from a procedural standpoint for Richard? Well, uh, just very briefly, when you set up a trust in Lab One, you do have to uh, make use and appoint a Lab One trust company as one of your trustees. So most of the time, these applications would go in through this Lab One uh, trust company that's a trustee, making a written application to the uh, Lab One Financial Services Authority, just, uh, just seeking the approval. And, um, you know, these approvals are given. Right, right. Have you, have you ever come across a, an approval that was, well, a, a, an application that was denied or rejected? I've not personally come across one that was rejected. Right, right. Okay. And the timing of this approval, how long does it generally take before the, the um, sort of applicant can expect this? Well, I mean, you know, the usual bureaucracy is, is there as always, but I, I don't imagine that it would, it would take that long. I, I, I seem to recall that, uh, you know, perhaps in, in a week or so. Right, right, okay, okay. Looking at the fact pattern again, what we have here is Richard transferring his BDI company shares into the trust established in Lab One. And the question here is, can Richard create a trust in Lab One using foreign property? Um, BBI company shares. Yes, absolutely. I think that's the you know the main intention where Lab One trusts were concerned when the whole concept and, and the legislation was introduced in 1996. And is there a requirement for authorization in this case? No, not at all. You can do it automatically. Right, right. Okay, so that's the key distinction. Is yes. when you have a, a, a sort of domestic um, uh, Malaysian creating a trust in Lab One. It's only authorized where you have domestic property being put into that trust. That's right. And just as an aside, can you put uh, Malaysian land into a Lab One trust? Uh, state, from, sorry, I was just going to say, you know, Lab, you know, Malaysian land or, or other property uh, in terms of shares, they'll be treated the same way. You'll still need authorization from the Lab One Financial Services Authority. Right. Okay. Looking at domestic divorce, so this is the case where Richard and Isabel um, uh, begin divorce proceedings. Key issues here are grounds on which Malaysia Divorce Court will exercise jurisdiction to grant a divorce, and is Malaysia Divorce Court bound to enforce the terms of a pre and post nuptial agreement? So the, the key one here is, I guess, um, the basis on which the, the court will exercise its jurisdiction to grant a divorce. So. When we've done this previously, we've looked at different nexuses that the courts will look at in the other jurisdictions that we have we've, um, sort of canvassed on these virtual round tables. And some of them look at residency, habitual um, sort of abode, 
uh, what's the nexus that Lab One, uh, uh, correction, that uh, Malaysia will apply when exercising its uh, divorce jurisdiction? There's a requirement that both parties must be domiciled in Malaysia. So that's the, the, the general requirement. Um, there are exceptions. So for example, if um, you know, the husband had deserted the wife and, and, uh, or been deported from Malaysia, for example, and the wife had been resident in Malaysia for two years prior to commencing divorce proceedings, the court would also take jurisdiction uh, in those circumstances. Right. But and sorry, just, just to add an interesting thing, because I was talking about uh, domicile, um, it's also actually provided in Section 3 of the Law Reform Marriage and Divorce Act 1976, that if you're a citizen of Malaysia, then by law, you're deemed to be domiciled in Malaysia until the contrary is proved. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So that can, yeah, so that can, that, that will lead to some some interesting variations. Um, I think that there's a similar provision in the, uh, in the Singapore equivalent where they also deem you to be domiciled by virtue of your citizenship as well. In, um, but this can be, it can be rebutted, obviously. I think we discussed the, um, the nuptial arrangements and here we're, we're still awaiting a, a sort of case that decides whether or not the court, what weight the courts will put into nuptial arrangements, whether or not they're just persuasive or they'll, they'll follow them um, to the letter. I, I should just follow up as well, um, Zach, to, to make it clear that, uh, you know, the Law Reform Marriage and Divorce Act only applies to non-Muslims. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so you're talking about, you know, Muslim marriages, etc. You know, that's not part of our discussion today. No, correct. That's right. Now, with respect to the uh, trust established in Labuan, there are a couple of questions on this. Can a Malaysian divorce court make an order varying the terms of a Lab One trust and can a Malaysia court uh, set aside a transfer of assets into a Lab One trust? So I suppose the first, the first question is, is premised on, you know, obviously we've got some of these um, uh, matrimonial causes acts that have been um, circulating within Commonwealth uh, jurisdictions and they provide for what they call sort of um, uh, nuptial or uh, nuptial settlements. Um, uh, and, and within that, the court has discretion to vary nuptial arrangements, um, nuptial settlements rather. The, the question, the first question, I guess, is within the Malaysia sort of matrimonial causes act, do we have the concept of a nuptial agreement or, or, or a, um, a nuptial settlement? Um, and if we do, um, does it provide for um, the court having power to vary that in the context of a trust? And then looking at Lab One particularly, because it has very um, uh, sort of advanced uh, firewall protections around Lab One trusts, whether or not a divorce court in Malaysia would be troubled by any of these um, sort of protections uh, because it's effectively within the same uh, country of jurisdiction. And then obviously looking at the, uh, whether or not any of the transfers into a trust, uh, in this case, Lab One trust could be set aside if they were done uh, for, uh, for reasons of trying to frustrate a divorcing spouse. And that's usually the context in which these questions are asked. So I just invite you to, to, to comment on um, both of those. Yeah, I mean, the main provision that we, we need to look at is obviously um, Section 102 of, of the same act that we've been talking about, the Law Reform, Marriage and Divorce Act 1976. And uh, in that section, very clear powers are given to uh, Malaysia Divorce Court uh, 
um, whereby they, they can set aside uh, disposition of property within three preceding years if it can be shown that the object of that disposition was really to you know, reduce the means to pay maintenance or to deprive the spouse of um, a share of that property. So right. under those circumstances, uh, a Malaysian divorce court is given power and has the powers under this, this section of that act to uh, actually set aside that disposition. And um, before the disposition actually takes place, there is also power under the same you know, provision for uh, an injunction to be given by the, the Malaysian divorce court. Of course, you need to satisfy you know, the requirements in order for the injunction to be given. Uh, and if you do, then, then the court can actually prevent um, the intended uh, disposition of property in such a situation. I think when it comes to varying the terms of, of, of a loved one trust, that, that's slightly different because you know, that's a lot wider when you're talking about varying the terms. Uh, I mean, if, if, it's, if it's to do with the disposition, then you know, they can do that. But varying the terms, not sure that the, the powers of the court go, go that far, actually. Right, right. And it, because if it happens, let's say, uh, the disposition was made more than three years before the divorce proceedings, then they would be thrown back on whether or not there is power to bury the trust. I mean, if it's more than three years, then I think very clearly there wouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. And moving on to um, would a major uh, divorce court seek to make an extraterritorial territorial order dividing UK property and would UK court recognize and enforce a Malaysian court order in those circumstances? So do the Malaysian divorce courts actually um, habitually make extraterritorial orders as, as a matter of practice? I think they could because, I mean, you know, they, they have jurisdiction over that couple and uh, in, in granting a divorce, they have um, the, the full powers under the act. But I think it's more whether in, in reality, in practical terms, whether there's any effect at all of, of making such an order, because we are talking about, as you said in your question, an extraterritorial order. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to be um, a Malaysian court issuing an order. The question would then be, would the, the UK courts recognize such an order and it, it may not necessarily be so. And, it, and, and in any event, I don't think it will be, it will be automatically enforced no. because it's, it's not the same as, you know, something like a reciprocal enforcement of judgment, which yeah. has its own, own rules. Um, and and, and this, is, this is a lot more complicated than that because it's not a, a, a judgment sum. So I think in reality, there, there would be no force of um, any such order as such in the UK. So in, in theory, perhaps, but, but in practice, uh, you know, I, I don't think it, it would actually be carried out. But then, of course, the other way of looking at it is that um, if the parties are within the jurisdiction of the Malaysian court, then um, if the, one of the parties is, is not abiding by it, then perhaps there, there's a situation of perhaps holding that, that party to be in contempt, etc. But, but you know, not in terms of going directly and, and having it enforced in the UK. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I mean, the, the, the relevant Administration of Justice Act 
1920 would be the relevant um, sort of uh, linkage with the UK. And there it would just effectively apply to a money judgment. So they, they generally wouldn't get involved in a sort of personam action where it's involving divorcing uh, spouses. So I think you're probably right. As long as, let's say, it's Richard that's trying to do this, um, remains in the jurisdiction, then I think it will be a direct order against him to transfer the property as in part of settlement of the divorce proceedings in, upon pain of sort of contempt of court and prison. So looking at the domestic succession, so here we have Richard passing away and there's um, a, a number of questions that we'll run through. So basis of application of Malaysia's succession laws, uh, and this is immovable property versus movable property. And again, we just say the same thing again. This is a, a non-Muslim couple, okay? So we're not applying Sharia law. We're looking at a, a non-Muslim scenario. Uh, does Malaysia succession law uh, include forced heir rights as we would understand it from a civil law perspective? Uh, can a dependent make a claim against the estate? And is there any inheritance tax in Malaysia? So the basis and application of Malaysian succession, succession laws as they apply to immovable property and movable property. I could um, ask your, your opinion on that, Kim. Yeah, um, with regards to immovable property, um, it would be lex situs, which is the law of the land where the property is situated. And in terms of movable property, then it's back to uh, domicile, right. that, that uh, concept that we talked about earlier for uh, marriages. Um, so it would depend on the domicile of um, the person in, in question. So if that person is domiciled in Malaysia, then Malaysian succession laws would apply to the movable property. Then the immovable property will be wherever uh, those immovable property is situated. There is, of course, no forced heirs laws rights under normal Malaysian civil law. And uh, the whole concept of forced heir rights only applies to Muslim marriages and uh, Muslim uh, sort of uh, succession uh, uh, provisions. So, so that's not a concept that, that, that is applied to non-Muslims in, in Malaysia. Your third question, yes, there is a provision in section three of our Inheritance Family Provisions Act 1971. So if in a will, the um, deceased Richard in this case has not made provision for either his wife or his son or daughter, um, they can make a claim against his estate for, for maintenance. Right. And the last question is, um, no inheritance tax in Malaysia. Right. That's Unlike in the UK, which is very high, I believe. Yes, yeah, that's, that's correct. Okay. I think just looking at the UK, um, the follow-on questions is which succession law will apply to UK stocks and investments, Malaysia or UK, and then which succession law will apply to UK land, Malaysia, and will a grant of probate administration be required? And is there any UK inheritance tax implications? I think we'll look at it from the context of, let's say that Richard were to die um, without a will. So, um, so he was dying, let's say, intestate. And as far as the UK stocks and investments, they would pass by way of Malaysian uh, intestacy law because Malaysia would effectively control through the domicile of Richard, the succession to movable assets and stocks and shares would be classified as movable assets for those purposes. 
Now, with respect to UK land, let's assume that Richard died in test eight, it would be UK intestacy rules that would apply because it would be the situs that would be the relevant law, and it would be obviously UK law being applied. Insofar as a grant of probate or administration is required, then uh, uh, obviously Malaysia and the UK are both uh, Commonwealth countries, and there would be what's called a simple resealing. So uh, effectively, the Malaysian grant would be resealed in the UK, and there wouldn't be a requirement to go through the formal process of applying again in the UK. For inheritance tax purposes, then within the fact that um, uh, Richard was not UK domiciliary, neither was uh, Isabel, so therefore the main attachment for inheritance tax in this case would be the situs of the absence, and that's the land and the stocks and shares. Applying the UK normal sort of provisions on inheritance tax, that would be the only um, property that would be subject to coverage. In other words, Richard's worldwide estate would not be within tax for the UK inheritance tax net. It would just be assets situated in the UK. And of course, the normal exemptions and exclusions would apply. So moving on to the foreign case study, we're looking first at the emigration side. And this, this the fact patterns here are Peter is a resident domiciled and a citizen of uh, Hong Kong, uh, married to Winnie and has a child, Jin, son has various assets in Hong Kong, including a trust of investments and land. The fact pattern is that uh, Peter moves from Hong Kong to Malaysia and at the same time uh, creates a trading company with a trading subsidiary in Hong Kong. So trading company in Love One, in this case, with a trading subsidiary in Hong Kong and holds uh, investment, an investment account in Singapore. Uh, other assets are acquired once taking up uh, residency in Malaysia, including a house and a, a depository account. So the questions that will be asked from an immigration standpoint is the process and requirements to establish a Lab One business, uh, the director residency requirements, tax implications of setting up in Lab One, and then the Malaysia residency rights that flow from establishing a presence in Love one, and I would invite Clara to just take us through uh, first the process and requirements to establish a Love One trading entity. Thanks, Zach, and hi everyone. Nice to see everyone here today. Um, it's really quite simple. Setting up a business in Love One, what you need to do is go to one of our 60 trust companies, um, submit the requirements. It should be done within a week. Uh, there are different thresholds for incorporation, obviously, and the statutory fees. But all in all, uh, based on experience and depending on, on the type of service provider um, that you engage, it can cost anything between two to three, four thousand US dollars uh, to set up a loved one company. Yeah, um, it will take about a week uh, or so. You can fast track it if you want. There is a fast track requirement, um, a fee for it, but that's very minimal. Um, and really what that gives you is the ability to have a loved one uh, company in order to run your business out of. Um, these trust companies or the company secretaries that we have in loved one, uh, they have offices in KL, they have offices in Kuala Lumpur, they have offices in uh, Singapore, offices in Hong Kong, um, and I'm sure they've got referral partners around the globe. So if you are interested in a loved one company, you if, if they don't offer it automatically on the menu, you may ask for it and they will have referrals, uh, referral partners in order to offer that to you. 
Uh, there are no director residence requirements. It's not mandatory to have a domestic um, a domestic director. Um, and uh, so you could be 100% foreign. It doesn't have to be a Malaysian. Uh, any Malaysian directors are not in required, okay? Uh, the tax implications have become a little bit more complicated uh, in the sense that the 3% tax is now uh, applicable um, and there are substance requirements that are now required. So you, you need to employ two full-time employees, um, paying them the minimum wage, the min minimum Malaysian wage, which is about 300, 350 US dollars, um, depending on the level. Um, and you need to have a domestic spend of 50,000 ringgit, right? Um, for Malaysian residents right now, this is when it gets a little bit more interesting. If you needed, if you had one of these companies and they uh, conduct, and this company actually conducts services, uh, trading in services, you are then able to um, get residence rights in Malaysia. The original uh, immigration allowance will be for loved one, but that can be extended to any place in Malaysia, and that also includes spouses and dependents. Um, so in a way, the loved one company not only gives you that tax neutrality, it can for the right uh, for the for the right kind of companies also offer residency. Farah, just on the um, the substance, because this is obviously a, the the big all the rage nowadays. Yeah. Um, what's actually required? in lab one itself because we we've got this requirement to employ um, at least a minimum of two um, individuals in lab one but what about the the offices and the premises etc what what needs to be shown on that if anything so it can be outsourced well i know for a fact that a lot of the lab one uh, corporate service providers are at the moment offering um offices shared offices in that sense um, so you can have uh, uh, an office. The, at the end of the day, it is about the domestic spend. It is about having two full-time employees um, in Lab One, uh, one of which uh, has to be a managerial capacity. Um, and, and that really is the requirement. I mean, I think what's worth noting, aside from just this immigration issue or the, the, the limiting, uh, the, 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 the circumstances surrounding the case we're discussing at the minute is the fact that the Labuan um, substance approach is fundamentally different from other jurisdictions. So we've been very prescriptive in that sense. Prescriptive in this sense is a word that is negative, but not necessarily in this instance, because there is um, certainty. There is no uh, reference to adequacy necessarily in the way we have approached it. So there is a laundry list of structures um, and, uh, and solutions. And for that uh, laundry list, you have corresponding uh, requirements for full-time employees and domestic spend. And just to remind everyone here that the domestic spend includes everything from the amount you pay your secretaries, um, your, you know, the amount that you spend for board meetings, uh, the regulatory fees that you pay. So anything outgoing, from the Labon entity is deemed a domestic spend. Right. And insofar as in, in our fact pattern, we've got Peter, presumably he's going to be a director of the Labon company. Does Peter actually have to hold his board meetings in Labon itself? Or, or is, there, is there a requirement that 
um, it's it's seen as a sort of uh, uh, sort of mind and management occurs in Labuan. He will have to go to Labuan. Right, he will have to go to Labuan, but he doesn't necessarily have to live in Labuan. I think he does not have to decide, but he needs to be able to prove that mind and management, the decisions, the executive decisions um, that he has taken on behalf of that company, is executed in Labuan. Right. So, how does this work now in a COVID environment? What, what has there been anything that we've done in the meantime where the travel restrictions have been in place? Yeah, so very much um, like other jurisdictions, what has happened is that the Labon Financial Services Authority has uh, passed on some regulatory relief, which is still in place um, because of the limitation vis-a-vis -vis, uh, travel. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's box standard. All the other jurisdictions have done it and so have we. Um, I would suspect, and again, you know, the, the disclaimer is coming out now, but I would suspect that, you know, for as long as we've got this pandemic ongoing, for as long as the travel bubbles are not uh, clearly defined or executed and, and the situation still remains in flux, which unfortunately it still does, um, these uh, requirements will continue to exist. And this um, relief, sorry, will, re uh, will continue to exist. Right. And then finally, for Peter, his, um, he gains residency rights by virtue of his um, Labuan trading entity. Does, does, could he reside anywhere in Malaysia with those rights? Or, or, where, or is he earmarked for a particular state? Yeah, so this is, this is the thing. First and foremost, the, the immigration will allow for him to reside in Labuan. Then a further application and endorsement will be required for him to be able to reside anywhere in Malaysia, um, number one. So for all intents and purposes, Peter could reside in Johor Bahru right. um, or Penang or Langkawi, which is beautiful. Um, but also what's important is that Peter is able to have his spouse and his dependents with him. Right, right, okay. Um, is there a pathway to citizenship for this route? Unfortunately not. Malaysia is extremely, extremely careful who they even give a permanent residency to. So foreign spouses, very, you know, it's not easy to get, number one. And um, passports or, or nationality is um, almost unheard of. Right, okay. Well, on that positive note, we'll move on. <laughs> Looking at the succession planning, uh, this is a simple case. Uh, all we have is Peter uh, transferring his investments uh, in, in Singapore into a Singapore trust. I pose it just to ask a simple question. Is there any Malaysia tax consequences for Peter engaging in this type of uh, succession planning or estate planning? I'd invite um, Kim to help us with this. Yeah, um, that, as we mentioned earlier, there's no inheritance tax. So there is no um, tax that applies when he's transferring his offshore um, assets into Singapore. And uh, it, the, the other thing to note as well is that in Malaysia, we don't have a corporate gains tax or capital gains tax unless it, we're talking about uh, real property. Right, right. So uh, the, the main tax we have is, is really just income tax. Right. And so far as the, the income that used to accrue from these financial investments, would, would Peter be liable both before in terms of the income stream before he put it into trust and would there be a difference when he puts it into trust and the income stream no longer goes to him is there what's what's the analysis from that perspective 
if he if he if he had received income before then obviously he would have been um, subject to income tax but malaysia's income tax laws is is based on ter territory so only malaysian source income uh, income is subject to tax in malaysia so if you hold you know shares in the uk or singapore you you won't be taxed on dividends uh, in those from those um, shares so remitted into malaysia is that right even if you remit it into Malaysia, so foreign source income is not taxed in Malaysia. Even if it's remitted in? Even if it's remitted in, yes. Okay. Yeah. So um, our, our income tax uh, laws are, are quite generous where that's concerned. And of course, when, when it goes into a trust, and depending on the terms of the trust, if, if he's not uh, paid uh, any income from the trust, there's no question of, of tax. Right, right, okay. So looking at the divorce law implications, because obviously in this case, uh, Peter and Winnie are, are um, they're not original Malaysian domiciliaries, um, they're residents of, of Malaysia. So we're looking at uh, the basis on which Malaysia court would exercise jurisdiction where we have visa residents. And then would the Malaysia court uh, enforce Hong Kong pre or post nuptial agreement? So. Um, based on which would a Malaysian court effectively exercise jurisdiction where we have a visa holder? How, how, would, we, how would we sort this one out? Uh, again, it, it sort of flows back to the original requirement of domicile. And uh, as I mentioned um, earlier, we, we do follow the English common law on the whole concept of domicile. So you have domicile of origin when you're, when you're born. And, and in the case of Malaysia, it, there's a specific provision that if you're a citizen, you're deemed to have a Malaysian domicile. And, uh, you know, may, maybe to explain it in a non-legal way, uh, domicile is actually very different from nationality. It's, it's more the concept of a place where you consider to be your permanent home. Mm. So your, your domicile origin, if you're born in Malaysia as a citizen, of, would obviously be Malaysia. But then if you decide to uh, immigrate and set up a permanent home elsewhere could very well be that you then shed your domicile origin and then pick up a domicile of choice, which could be, you know, Australia or UK going by the examples that we had talked about earlier this afternoon. Right, right. And um, there's also an, uh, another concept if you're a married woman, which is a domicile dependency, whereby a, a married woman takes domicile of the husband. So, so, so that's just very briefly how, how domicile works. So in this case, it, it will depend very much on whether, you know, the couple can show their intention to make Malaysia their permanent home to the extent that it, it's clear that um, they've established a domicile of choice in Malaysia. Right, right. Before, before the Malaysian Divorce Court will exercise jurisdiction. And then if in the case that they do um, demonstrate that they have a, a domicile of choice in Malaysia and they've demonstrated enough um, sort of commitment to staying in Malaysia uh, permanently, um, would a Malaysian court entertain a effectively a Hong Kong nuptial arrangement in, in coming to um, exercise their discretion? We talked about this before in the context of a domestic couple, but given that the marriage was, let's say, celebrated 
and it originated in Hong Kong, would it, would it hold any sort of uh, more weight that it's a, a foreign marriage with respect to the, uh, the Malaysian court? I don't think it necessarily will. I think the Malaysian courts will still go by the laws in, in Malaysia and, and in particular the, the same act, the Law Reform Marriage and Divorce Act of 1976 and look at what the powers are given to the courts under that act. So the courts will have full discretion, but they are not bound to um, pay heed to or apply um, any pre or post nuptial agreements agreed between the parties. Right, right, okay. Okay, so looking at the um, Hong Kong uh, land, the property, whether the Malaysian Divorce Court may order division of a Hong Kong property and whether the Hong Kong um, court will recognize and enforce. So we did this in the context of the, the UK. UK. So we're, we're again um, sort of looking at it um, extraterritorially. Um, uh, uh, any views on, uh, insofar as a uh, Hong Kong-based uh, property in Malaysian court, from what you said previously on the UK side? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think there'll be any difference, uh, regardless of whether the property is in Hong Kong or UK. The, the concept would still be the same, and the um, you know, it's, it's a, in actual fact, it will not have the, the effect that is, that is desired because it's extraterritorial. So it will still very much depend on the court in, in the jurisdiction of where the property is held, in this case, Hong Kong. I mean, I think Hong Kong has this enforcement of um, foreign judgments and in that they, they, they do have a section where they will not enforce matrimonial related um, uh, uh, sort of orders. So I think that that's pretty pretty clear from their perspective that they probably would not entertain yeah. money uh, money related order, particularly one um, stemming from divorce proceedings. Now, insofar as the um, so whether a Malaysian divorce court would seek to set aside dispositions of assets into a Hong Kong trust, and whether a Malaysian divorce court would seek to redistribute the Laban Company uh, shares and whether a Malaysian divorce court would seek to set aside disposition of assets into a Singapore trust. So these are looking at, um, from a, uh, the, the sort of matrimonial causes perspective, whether or not um, sort of assets were put away uh, with the intention, presumably on the trusts, of um, uh, frustrating, in this case, let's say, Winnie's claims um, in the divorce proceedings. So I think from the Hong Kong and Singapore trusts, would a Malaysian court seek to set aside those dispositions on an extraterritorial basis? I think the answer to that is, you know, technically they can because under the um, Section 102 that we mentioned earlier of the Law Reform Marriage and Divorce Act 1976, the powers are given to the court to do so in, in a divorce if they can see that uh, this was done in, in the preceding three years, the intention was to really deprive the spouse of a share of the property or to reduce the means for maintenance, then the court does have that power. But again, you know, the stumbling block is the fact that we're talking about assets which are outside the jurisdiction. Um, in, in this case, whether it's in a Hong Kong trust or a Singapore trust, the Malaysian court in, in actual fact will, will not have the powers to go across territory to, to either Hong Kong or Singapore to have whatever order that they may um, give in the Malaysian court to be enforced. Yeah. So, that, so that's, the, that's, the, that's the main issue, that's the problem. Yes, and that, that's coming back to the nuptial settlements 
issue yeah. from a standpoint they have the natural settings but as I understand it Malaysia doesn't have within its matrimonial causes the same issue of natural settlements being subject to variation is yeah. that correct right but surely they, they would be able to redistribute the Labuan company shares yes that one the answer to that is yes because um, the Labuan company is within Malaysia uh, Labuan is a part of, of Malaysia so the assets in the form of uh, shares in the Labuan company would be Malaysian assets that they can give an order to uh, redistribute in, in any way that the court deems fit and uh, it, it can be enforced in, in, in this situation. Right, right. Okay. So just looking at the succession law implications. So here we have Peter passing away. And the question being asked is from a, a Malaysia domicile perspective, uh, dependent claims against the estate in Malaysia, basis of those, dependent claims against property in Hong Kong. So uh, we're looking at this from the um, um, clawback claims against trusts in Singapore and Hong Kong. So we're looking at it in the context that uh, if it were found that Peter at his death was Malaysian domiciled, so in this case, he would clearly be a, a Malaysian domicile of choice unless he had an origin, oddly enough. Um, would there be a dependent claim, uh, could there be a dependent claim uh, against the estate in Malaysia? And then with respect to extraterritorial claims, dependent claim against Hong Kong um, sort of property, and then clawback claims against the trusts in Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, is, is it capable of, are we capable of having clawback claims within the, um, the, uh, the context of the family provisions um, uh, act in, in Malaysia? Yeah, the answer to one is yes, um, as, as discussed earlier. So yes, a dependent can make a claim against the estate in Malaysia. Um, now that Peter is take, is, has been shown to be domiciled in Malaysia, so the courts will have jurisdiction and the courts can order uh, maintenance against the estate for either the spouse or, or the child that, that's not been provided for. Um, the second point, again, you have problems with extraterritorial. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, that is really a, a, a no-go. Yeah. I, I really mean, imagine. So that particular one, Kim, it seems that the, when the Commonwealth jurisdictions have all been running this piece of legislation, these family inheritance dependent claims, and what there's, there seems to be a, a sort of common view that um, they won't exercise discretion where it's land. They, they don't mind exercising discretion where it's movable assets. But insofar as land is concerned, they say that that's a situs issue and not covered by their discretion. And this is, is there's a bunch of authority on this from New Zealand and Australia, where there's a reluctance to exercise the family provision um, uh, sort of extraterritorially when it's dealing with um, real property, immovable property. I think probably if, uh, you know, sort of Malaysian courts would probably defer to Commonwealth's judgments on these and, and see what the other courts are doing, they may well take the view that it's Hong Kong land and therefore it's off limits for us to exercise a discretion on a, a situst asset. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're quite right because um, the the decisions in other Commonwealth courts will be uh, taken into account, persuasive to a Malaysian court, especially when there are no Malaysian uh, court decisions on the same point. Right. So, 
So yeah, it, it, those, those decisions would be persuasive to a Malaysian court in, in terms of how they make the decision. And then in terms of clawback, am I right in my analysis of the Malaysian um, family inheritance legislation is it doesn't have a concept of clawback. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, it, it doesn't have the same um, provision as set out in the Law Reform Marriage and Divorce Act, which right. basically right. Gives, gives the right for you know, either an injunction or a clawback, as you say, in, in regard to disposition. Okay, then looking at it from the Hong Kong perspective, I can run through this fairly quickly. Hong Kong uh, operates in the same way uh, in terms of entitlement, where the Hong Kong court will have discretion where the, the deceased died domicile in Hong Kong, but they also have this extrapolation where they're ordinarily resident uh, at any point in the three years prior to death. That would also give the Hong Kong court rights to exercise uh, their discretion. So a dependent claim would be possible if Peter had died within three years of um, having been um, Hong Kong ordinarily resident. Dependent came against Malaysian property, you would have a clear conflict here because uh, Malaysia would be operating on domicile basis, whereas Hong Kong in this case could be operating on a deemed basis because of the ordinary residence. And in any event, even if the Hong Kong court wanted to do it, I think it would probably not try and move against Malaysian land. If it were gonna try it, it would be against Malaysian movables. But given that the Malaysian court has the authority through the domicile, it's very unlikely a Hong Kong court would go against, uh, would effectively make a, uh, an order where it had no chance of being enforced. And in clawbacks, yes, you, you do have the, the right within um, the, the Hong Kong setting to uh, claw back. If, if uh, there was a, within six years, there was a uh, disposition that was seeking to defeat um, any of these dependent claims. I think that would be possible against the Hong Kong Trust, but not against the Singapore Trust. Um, because the Singapore firewall protections would probably apply. Okay, I think that's, that brings us to the end. I think we've run over a little bit, but in terms of questions, I can, we, we've got a number of them um, lined up and we'll see what we can do for, let's say, the next um, 15 minutes. Um, let's see, uh, I'm just going to go. So does a loved one trust need to fulfill the substance requirements? I think that's fair, that's, that's one perhaps, and also obviously Kim, um, uh, does a loved one trust need to fulfill substance requirements? Is it within the substance requirements? It's silent. Silent, right. Uh, well, I was going to say a short answer to that is, is no, but, uh, but then um, Farah is more circumspect than me. Right, okay, so it's not yes, like yes. It's, it's silent, and um, in this, and, and, and the same would apply to a foundation as well, right, Kim? So, well, talking purely from a, from a legal perspective, yeah. and not um, Farah being the regulator has got her hands somewhat tied, you know, I would say that you go strictly by you know what's written in the law, and if there's nothing in the law that talks about substance and and there's there's nothing you know in terms of um, um, re requiring it and in the same way that it, regulations have been brought in for companies mm. um, I would say that you just go by what's in the law and there's nothing in the law so I would I would take it that there are no requirements right, right. Is, is that likely to change is there any any mutterings of a change on that? 
I, I think the concept of a trust is very different from the concept of a company. So I think if you're a company and you're, you're trading and uh, carrying on business, it makes a difference to, to show that you, you are actually carrying on business from the jurisdiction where you say you are located. But a trust is, the whole concept of the trust is, is so different. You, you're not carrying on any business. You know, your trustees, besides the fact that you must have one trustee in Labuan, under the Labuan Trust Act, your trustees can be anywhere. Your decisions can be made anywhere. And, and you know, there really is no requirement or reason why you, you actually need to be situated in, in Labuan. Right, right. That's my take on it. Okay. And also, just, just to add, and put my neck out there a bit, um, other jurisdictions do not require for substance anyway for these structures. And structures. Yeah, that's true. That's so true. There's, there's no reason to assume uh, that we would either. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, insofar as a uh, dispute involving a Lab One structure or a Lab One company, uh, which court will handle the matter? So this is one of the questions. Which courts will have uh, jurisdiction to hear Lab One? Um, sort of disputes. Number one is it's in a bit of a unique situation because if um, you know the history of Malaysia, we have East Malaysia and West Malaysia. So in our court system, we actually have a High Court of Malaya, which is West Malaysia, and we have the High Court of Borneo, which is East Malaysia. So Labuan is actually situated in Borneo, East Malaysia, but it is not part of East Malaysia in terms of administration, because it's, it's been declared a federal territory. Previously, it was part of Sabah, which is one of the states in East Malaysia. So it would be very clear that you know the High Court of Borneo would um, would take jurisdiction. But in in this case, Labuan is is in a bit of a unique situation. But I think the fact that it's it's there in in Labuan, you can have the High Court of Malaya which could sit in Labuan to hear this case so that um, it, it would still be um, the high, high Court of Malaya on the basis that Labuan is a federal territory. Right, right. Okay, and then there was a, another question uh, with regard to which is transfer of properties investments. Apart from the uh, Labuan uh, approval, will the foreign exchange rules of BNM uh, be applicable. So I think this is this is coming back to authorization for a domestic individual to transfer assets into a Lab One uh, structure. Is there any other approvals that are required? I I think that well Farah will jump in I'm sure, but uh, I think the unique uh, position of Lab One in in the Malaysian foreign exchange system is that if if you set up a company in Lab One you are considered for purposes of the Bangagara foreign exchange rules as being a non-resident. So because of that, you do not require the approval of Bangagara the way that a resident would do in relation to a lot of um, foreign exchange transactions. So Labuan has been given this special dispensation that the, they're not treated like residents of Malaysia. Right, right, okay. And then I think one for me, uh, in terms of the six year clawback. So the, the context in Hong Kong was uh, you have an individual dying and you have a dependent claim against the estate. 
uh, Hong Kong provides a rule, which is uh, the same as the UK, where you can revisit dispositions into a trust that occurred in the six years prior to death. And that's the same uh, both in the UK as well as in Hong Kong. So that's, that's just explaining, but you need to obviously prove uh, grounds for revisiting that disposition if it were done with the intention of um, defeating claims, dependent claims. This is not something that's capable of being done either in uh, Singapore or in um, Malaysia because they don't have the callback provisions. Um, another one with respect to the UK, um, the tax implications. Uh, the only point being made was if you're a non-domiciliary uh, in the UK, then it's the UK slightest assets that will be subject to the inheritance tax and the applicable rates and uh, exemptions, et cetera, will apply in the usual way. Uh, it won't apply on a worldwide basis. So unless you're um, some way deemed domicile in the UK, then you'll start to get into trouble. But if you don't have a domicile connection with the UK, then the, um, the inheritance tax will just be on a slightest basis. But there are, there are special categories of assets that are carved out of that insofar as investments are concerned. So you need to look and apply the rules in a particular way. Now, anything else? Um, let's see. I think we've also got some questions on the, the chat. So I'll just take a look at that and we'll. So give me a second just to read. Um, how do the current tax law systems affect the mobility of funds from those intents and donors are other countries? Uh, no, this is this will be something. This is on a CRS question, so no. So when all property is owned by a foundation in Labuan, um, then what is the right of a wife if the wife is not beneficiary in case of divorce? So there we're looking at, uh, presumably, we'd have to make up a bit more of the fact pattern here. Um, let's assume that we had a, uh, a domestic divorce and there was a foundation in that one. Um, the, if the wife is not in any way connected, not a beneficiary, et cetera, then um, Kim, are we getting back to this same situation of being yeah. able to effectively set aside dispositions where we can prove that they were being made for the intent of frustrating a divorce court. Yeah. Right, right. And that's notwithstanding any of the professed provisions in uh, Lab One that uh, seek to limit the ability of those sorts of claims to be made against Lab One related structures. Um, I think the one that you're, you're referring to is when it, if we we're talking about trust, which is section 10. Yeah. But strangely, that only talks about foreign. So it, it doesn't talk about, you know, Malaysian. Yes. Do we have the same provision on the foundation where it says uh, without prejudice to any Malaysian laws when it comes to the protections? Does it, does it have the same um, sort of proviso? I can't recall offhand, actually, um, whether it's exactly the same in, in, the, Lab, in the Lab One Foundation side. Right, right. Okay, okay. I mean, just one final point on, on the trust side when it comes to these divorces. There, there's always sort of um, um, case law on this where if you do have an aggressively drafted trust where the settlor reserves numerous powers, powers to revoke, powers of appointment, then don't be surprised if the divorce court doesn't view the trust as simply being uh, a piece of matrimonial property. So they wouldn't even trouble itself with looking at trying to apply some of these clawback rules 
or, or looking at setting aside dispositions, it would just see the trust as effectively an asset in the estate. And I think we've seen cases, there's, a, there's a, a, a case in Singapore in the early 80s where that exact same thing occurred, where there was an aggressive reservation of powers and um, the, the Singapore court took the view that, well, this is just part of the assets of the, um, of the estate. These are not separated from um, the actual um, sort of patrimony of the, of the party. So when you're creating an aggressive trust structure, bear in mind that these powers that you're reserving may be tantamount to a property ownership in the eyes of a family judge. Kim, would you agree that that, that sort of um, analysis could be quite open to some of these family judges? Um. I suppose it is possible, but it, 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 I think there is provision in the Love One Trust Act that actually says the fact that you reserve powers doesn't uh, you know, impact the validity of the trust, etc. So if it doesn't impact the validity of the trust, that means it's been properly established as a trust, then the protection given to it under the Love One Trust Act would apply. So you know, in a sense, that has been covered by, by legislation. I suppose you could run a similar argument, and then we just wrap up after this. You could run a similar argument where you're trying to do a dependent claim and you're faced by a trust and there's no uh, sort of clawback, but you can say, well, there's so much reservation of powers that effectively this is a property in the estate. So I don't need to actually look at a clawback. This is actually assets that are available in the estate. I mean, these are arguments, whether or not they would meet any sort of success, but at least you can assert that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. I just I I'm I'm peaked now because <laughs> sorry. If if you know what I'm like, if at the end of the day, right, a founder has endowed and given up all rights of a piece of property to the foundation, the foundation is the legal owner of this entity. How can a wife then um, create a nexus to that foundation when there has been legal transfer of benefit and ownership through a, a, an entity with a separate you know i mean in that sense this is we're going into that whole idea of trust versus foundations uh, um that whole piece of work isn't that just the clawback kim isn't that just going to be the the court exercising its statutory rights to claw back the asset in those circumstances if it applies to it, I mean, we, we are, because we're talking about different uh, legislation, Farah, we're talking about the powers to, given to the court under the, uh, you know, the, the Law Reform Marriage and Divorce Act, which is specifically to prevent um, steps taken by a spouse to deprive the other spouse of either a share of the property or to reduce his means so that he, he you know, he, he doesn't have to pay maintenance to, to the to the other spouse. So that provision is put in there to, to, def, to prevent um, you know, the spouse defeating the, the court's ability uh, to divide and to order maintenance, et cetera, in a divorce. So to prevent that, so they have this clawback that says if you did it within three years before divorce proceedings were commenced, then if you, of course, you have to, you know, satisfy the court, prove to the court that, yes, it, it was a very clear-cut case that the only reason why this property that's been in a family for 20 years was suddenly, you know, disposed of, then once the court is satisfied, then the, the court has the powers to order such uh, clawback of properties. 
So that that is the the background, the scenario to to approach this. And uh, the the corresponding thing then is look at whether the Labuan Trust Act or the Labuan Foundation Act has a firewall, as the Ways Act puts it, to prevent it. And we had looked at the Labuan Trust Act, and in that case, the the firewall only talks about um, foreign jurisdictions, claims from foreign jurisdictions will not, uh, you know, um, have any traction against a Labuan Trust. Um, but there is a provision in that section right at the end that says, um, when it comes to Malay Malaysia laws, it, it only it only applies if it's uh, consistent with the rest of the laws of Malaysia. So that that is the difficulty there. It's a, and since that is already put into the legislation, and the Labuan Trust Act is obviously a later legislation, piece of legislation, than the Law Reform Marriage and Divorce Act, which is 1976 versus 1996. So then you would um, deem that the draftsman is aware of that earlier act, and but still drafted it the way he did, which must mean that he he's he's um, taken cognizance and he's trying to make sure that the act can work side by side, so it doesn't you know render the the earlier act redundant. Right. So I think the, the lesson learned there is don't try and use love one as a as a convenient jurisdiction to evade your obligations under a, a sort of divorce court order because it's not going to work if you're a domestic malaysian yeah you're not a domestic malaysian it might work but for a domestic malaysian it, it's not designed for that purpose i think that's that's the broad the broad view all right okay i think we will we will stop there for today um i think thanks very much to to kim to farah and dominic for um spending time and thank you for everybody who um who spent time uh, viewing this um very grateful for all the support and everyone who, who uh, sits and goes through these vrts with us and um just mentioned that we've got the the governance and succession program which is going to be uh, kicking off next week but for today i think this is um sort of thank you from us all and uh and thank you to the panelists for spending time thank you very much